0: From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So how much advertising do you think you see every day? Think about all the TV commercials, Face the world, the ads on YouTube or Hulu. Go to Geico.com to see how much pop-up ads, seen. banner ads, targeted ads, logos. I and don't forget your commute. Love, it's what makes a, super. a super. Now up to Billboards, posters on buses, trains, buildings.
2: Alert your doctor right away. It's difficult to swallow. sleeping, breathing. Now, whatever
0: number you're thinking of, the number of ads you see every day, I'm going to guess it's too low.
3: New Mountain Dew Ice, a clear, refreshing lemon lime dew.
0: Because some estimates show that most Americans are exposed to between four and 10,000 ads every day. And all those ads are after one thing, your attention.
4: Attention is an absolutely significant resource, right?
0: This is sociologist Zeynep Tufekci.
4: Everybody has 24 hours in the day. You sleep some, you work some, and what time you have free is one of the most important things you have. Getting your attention and putting in front of you can change your opinions, it changes what you prioritize, it affects politics, it affects your social interactions. I think that in an age where you have too much information, The crucial resource is that which information consumes, which is attention. Your attention is being battled over and being packaged and sold. Attention is a commodity. Absolutely. And we have a digital economy that is essentially based on making sure that we are not in control of our attention.
0: On the show today, competing for your attention. Ideas on the value of our awareness and why, in an age of infinite distractions, whoever can capture our attention holds a lot of power. Zeynep Tufekci explains from the TED stage.
5: Do you ever go on YouTube, meaning to watch one video, and an hour later you watch 27? <laughs> you know how YouTube has this column on the right that says, up next, and it autoplays plays something? It's an algorithm. Picking what it thinks that you might be interested in and maybe not find on your own. It's not a human editor. It's what algorithms do. It picks up on what you have watched and what people like you have watched and infers that that must be what you're interested in, what you want more of, and just shows you more. Sounds like a benign and useful feature, except when it isn't. So in 2016, I attended... um, rallies of then-candidate Donald Trump to study, uh, as a scholar, the movement supporting him. I study social movements, so uh, I was studying it, too. And then I wanted to write something about one of his rallies, so I watched it a few times on YouTube. YouTube started recommending to me and autoplaying to me white supremacist videos in increasing order of extremism. If I watched one, it served up one even more extreme, and autoplayed that one, too. If you watch Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders' content, YouTube recommends and autoplays Conspiracy Left, and it goes downhill from there. Well, you might be thinking this is politics, but it's not, this isn't about politics, it's just the algorithm figuring out human behavior. I once watched a video about vegetarianism on YouTube, and YouTube recommended and autoplayed played a video about being vegan. <laughs> it's like you're never hardcore enough for YouTube.
4: So what's going on here isn't YouTube engineers are out to wreck the world, right? But they have set loose an algorithm that's optimized to grab your attention for as long as possible to keep you on the site, on their their word for it, engagement, while YouTube serves the ads. And the algorithm has sussed out that humans are particularly susceptible, especially young people, are particularly susceptible to the idea that they're discovering a secret, that they're being told something edgier, Right, something more extreme, because it's kind of like, ooh, this is novel. I'm interested in this, right? It's sort of seducing you. It's sort of trying to play to your appetites. So the algorithm automatically plays more and more. So if you just watch some political stuff, you end up with Alex Jones, who has all these horrible conspiracy theories. Um, you watch um, some you know, science stuff, and three recommended autoplays later – You're in the moon landing never happened. You watch something about Trump and a little bit later, the algorithm is playing the uh, Holocaust never happened stuff. So by optimizing for grabbing your attention, we have in effect through YouTube's recommender algorithm created this engine of extremism that is deployed globally. "Up,
0: this is really bad. I agree. Like, this is this should never have been allowed to
4: happen. Well, I absolutely agree it is a big problem. But I'm an optimist, right? Just like we can deal with the other things that come with the 21st century, and just like, you know, industrial revolution has brought us a lot of good things, this is something we can deal with. We just have to say, look, let's make explicit what the problem is. Let's realize that our attention is a crucial resource, and it's an equal resource, right? Every human being on the planet only has so many hours. It doesn't matter you're rich or not, right? You still have so many hours. It's one of the most human of things. And we have to treat our attention and our time as the crucial resource it is and change. And we're being told a story by Silicon Valley that this is inevitable this is good or that this stuff has to come in combination. You know, if you're gonna use digital stuff, you're gonna have your attention manipulated and sold. It's just not true. They packaged it this way and we don't have to. We finally are paying attention to the question of attention. The next step is we need tools and regulations and industry self-regulation and individual awareness and all those things together to say, How do we grab back control of this most precious resource? Zeynep
0: Tufekci, she's a sociologist at the University of North Carolina and a columnist for the New York Times. You can find all of her talks at TED.com. Do you remember when you were a kid, like in the summertime, and there was no school, and it was hot, And the days would go on forever, and it was so boring. So, so boring. Do you remember that? Oh,
1: yeah, I remember it. I had a babysitter, actually, who used to lock us out of the house in the afternoons so she could watch her soap opera. And I remember, like... Walking, we would so we would play this game where we would walk around the house and try to find ways to get back into the house, and that just would go on for hours and hours. And then you'd find ourselves like sitting in like a, a like a rut by the side of the house, just looking at the dirt, yeah, and doing very little. <laughs> I don't think I've ever told my mother that story, actually.
0: This is Manoush Zomorodi.
1: I'm Manoush Zamarodi. I am a podcast host. I am a tech journalist. And I am the author of the book, Bored and Brilliant.
0: And Manoush argues that the feeling of being bored isn't actually something people experience anymore.
1: I definitely don't think that my children have ever experienced that sensation their minds are constantly being stimulated by stem camp or you know adventure camp and after-school guitar lessons and well ipad games that are allegedly educational there's always every moment is filled
0: And it's not just kids. All of us were filling the time when we used to be bored, when our minds would just wander. With never-ending stimulation. Stimulation that captures our attention. And that's whether we're waiting in line at the airport. Oh, I check my to-do
1: list. I text my husband. I read the headlines.
0: Or taking a break from
1: work. I go back and check my to-do list again. I answer an email. I maybe play a quick game. So
0: delicious. It's a relatively recent phenomenon that will do almost anything to keep from being bored.
1: Like, you know, how many kids were told only boring people? get bored as though this was something to be avoided boredom oh my god avoid that at all costs
0: but by constantly preventing ourselves from becoming bored we actually might be missing out on something bigger manu somorodi explains from the ted stage
1: I started talking to neuroscientists and cognitive psychologists, and what they told me was fascinating. It turns out that when you get bored, you ignite a network in your brain called the default mode. So our body, it goes on autopilot while we're folding the laundry or we're walking to work, but actually that is when our brain gets really busy. Here's boredom researcher Dr. Sandy Mann. Once you start daydreaming and allow your mind
4: to really wonder, you start thinking a little bit beyond the conscious, a little bit into the subconscious, which allows sort of different connections um, to take place. It's really awesome, actually.
1: Totally awesome, right? So this is my brain in an fMRI, and I learned that in the default mode, that is when we connect disparate ideas, we solve some of our most nagging problems, and we do something called autobiographical planning. This is when we look back at our lives, we take note of the big moments, we create a personal narrative, and then we set goals and we figure out what steps we need to take to reach them. But now we chill out on the couch, also while updating a Google Doc or replying to email. The average person checks email 74 times a day and switches tasks on their computer 566 times a day. I discovered all this talking to professor of informatics, Dr. Gloria Mark. So we find that when people are stressed, they tend to shift their attention more rapidly. Um, We also found, strangely enough, we find that the shorter amount of sleep that a person gets the more likely they are to check Facebook. So we're in this vicious, (laughs) habitual cycle. (laughs) But could this cycle be broken? Like, what would happen if we broke this vicious cycle? What if we reclaim those cracks in our day? Could it help us jumpstart our creativity? Maybe my listeners could help me find out. We called the project Bored and Brilliant. And um, within 48 hours, 20,000 people signed wow. up to I. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, not a special snowflake. This is a thing. People are feeling this.
0: In just a moment, what happens when 20,000 people pledge to stop paying attention to their phones and start being bored? Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to the all-new Honda Clarity Plug-In Hybrid. When the battery runs low in your electric car, it's nice to have a backup plan. That's why the Clarity Plug-In Hybrid runs on electric and gas if you need it. Plus, it's packed with a premium interior that comfortably seats five adults, a full-size trunk, and the Honda Sensing suite of advanced safety and driver-assistive technologies. Find out more about the Clarity plug-in hybrid at clarity.honda.com. Thanks also to Microsoft Surface Laptop. At just under three pounds and with up to 14 and a half hours of battery life, Surface Laptop lets you binge-watch your favorite shows whenever and wherever you want. Do more with Surface Laptop. Thin, light, and beautiful. Hey, before we get back to the show, I want to share some news that's connected to another show I host, How I Built This. We're hosting our first ever How I Built This One Day Summit, sponsored by American Express. You'll have a chance to hear from and interact with some of the world's most inspiring entrepreneurs and founders, like Airbnb's Joe Gebbia, Katrina Lake of Stitch Fix, John Zimmer of Lyft, and many, many more. We'll have breakout sessions with experts and guides, and the summit will be a chance for you to meet other innovators and builders. The How I Built This Summit will take place on October 16th at San Francisco's Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. You can go to npr.org summit to find out more and to get your tickets. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, competing for your attention. What living in an age of constant information and infinite distractions can do to our brains, our culture, and our lives... And just before the break, we were hearing from podcast host Manusha Samarodi, who, on an episode of her show, asked listeners to put down their phones for a week to see what happens.
1: So one day, take the app that your thumb always seems to gravitate towards, take it off your phone and observe what it feels like, and then decide, do you want it back on your phone? Cool, go for it if you do. But do not let the tech companies Decide as their decision making. Don't let that be the default, which it very much
0: has become, I think, for consumers. So, out of the tens of thousands of people who signed up for the challenge, some of them called her up because they started to realize that their relationship with their phone had kind of become codependent.
3: The relationship between a baby and its teddy bear, or a baby and its binky, or A baby that wants its mother's cradle when it's done with being held by a stranger, (laughs) that's the relationship between me and my phone.
1: I think of my phone like a power tool, extremely useful, but dangerous if I'm not handling it properly. If I don't pay close attention, I'll suddenly realize that I've lost an hour of time doing something totally mindless. Okay, but to really measure any improvement, we needed data, right? That's what we do these days. So we partnered with some apps that would measure how much time we were spending every day on our phone. And if you're thinking it's ironic that I asked people to download another app so that they would spend less time on their phones, yeah, but you got to meet people where they are. But when the data came in, it turned out that we had cut down, on average, just six minutes. From 120 minutes a day on our phones to 114. Yeah, whoop
0: doo So it's amazing that you you got so many people involved and then looked at the data and turned out that people just saved six minutes a day, Ugh. which is sort of like uh, like deflating, right? I mean, after all this effort, people are only saving <laughs> six minutes a day, which tells us something about ourselves. Yeah, I mean, it tell. Well, first
1: of all, it tells me that i have been trained to expect 10x returns right (laughs) Right. like you know we expect these huge numbers and i was i thought six minutes was nothing but when i went back to the scientists and researchers who were advising me on this they i'm not joking they laughed in my face they Hmm. were like who says six minutes isn't significant Hmm. and frankly like you know, the fact that you got people to change their behavior at all over a week is extraordinary. And listen to the stories because the stories will tell you so much more than any data can. Hmm. And that's what people told me. They told me stories about how they realized they used to relax by playing their guitar and that they suddenly understood that they, they hadn't played it in years or things bigger than that, um, that people had sat down, just thought about what the family dynamics were and get to a better place in their relationship. There were all these amazing stories that people told us. And I thought, you know what? You're right. F the six minutes, right?
0: Yeah, Yeah, totally. Or
1: like, let's stop giving boredom such a bad rap. It actually is an extremely important human function that we are starting to just sort of breed out of our daily lives. And I, I sort of look around and I see there's lots of things like that: um, downtime, eye contact, conversations out loud where people stutter or make mistakes or take more than a quick, you know, 140 characters to figure out what they want to say. We've lost the capacity in many ways, I think, for patience. If we want to have excellent ideas, the best ideas, we need to let them take the time to take root and then blossom. And that does not happen in a tap of, a, of an app. Yeah, We're humans, we need time. And that's the one thing that our phones can't give us more of.
0: Manush Samarodi, she's a podcast host and co-founder of the media company Stable Genius Productions. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about how the things that compete for our attention might actually be hurting it.
2: This is this whole uh, myth of multitasking. Like, oh, I'll keep all of my alerts on and sit down to do something important. It never works out.
0: This is neuroscientist Amishi Ja. She's a professor at the University of Miami, where she
2: studies attention. Deciding to pick up your phone to see who just texted you or looking at that website just because you wanted to see if you want to buy those new pair of shoes, whatever it is, it's pulling your attention away. And now you have to expend even more capacity to get it back on track.
0: Can you break this down from a neuroscience perspective? What actually is attention?
2: One way we can think about attention, I see it as sort of like a flashlight. Hmm. So just like a flashlight, you know, wherever we direct it in a darkened room, that part of our visual scene will be processed better. It allows us to willfully direct our brain's resources to particular things, whether it's the external environment, or we can even direct that flashlight internally to memories or emotions, if we'd like.
0: For the past 15 years, Amishi's been studying why it's harder to pay attention the longer we have to do it.
2: And what is making people more likely to decline in their performance the longer they have to stay attentive?
0: And a lot of our experiments start with participants putting on these hats that kind of look like swimming caps. And those caps have electrodes
2: embedded in them to measure attention. With things like functional MRI and brainwave recordings. And then participants are asked to do a series of tasks. Something as simple as you're going to see a number on the screen. Every time you see a number, press a button. Except when that number's three, don't press the button. Sounds pretty easy, right? Right. It's so
0: simple. You see the number three... You don't press the button.
2: But what happens within, I would say, within two minutes of having people do this task, they mess up. So when the number three does pop up? Sure enough, they press the button. And you wonder why. I mean, you didn't make the numbers hard to see, no. But what we did is make the task so boring that people willfully will start mind-wandering.
0: Amishi Jha picks up her idea from the TED stage.
2: So what do all of these studies tell us? They tell us that attention is very powerful in terms of affecting our perception. And things like stress and mind-wandering diminish its power. But that's all in the context of these very controlled laboratory settings. What about in the real world? What about in our actual day-to-day life? What about now? Where is your attention right now? I'd like to make a prediction about your attention for the remainder of my talk. You will be unaware of what I'm saying for four out of the next eight minutes. Now, why am I saying this? A growing body of literature suggests that we mind-wander, we take our mind away from the task at hand, about 50 percent of our waking moments. And when this mind-wandering happens, it can be problematic. Now, I don't think there'll be any dire consequences with you all sitting here today, but imagine a military leader missing four minutes of a military briefing or a judge missing four minutes of testimony. The consequences in those cases could be dire. So one question we might ask is, why do we do this? Why do we mind-wander so much? Well, part of the answer is that our mind is an exquisite, time-traveling master. We can rewind the mind to the past to reflect on events that have already happened, right? Or we can go in fast future to plan for the next thing that we want to do. And we land in this mental time travel mode of the past or the future very frequently, most times without our awareness, even if we want to be paying attention.
0: I, I feel like we humans are in this grand experiment where increasingly we're all becoming like cats in front of a laser beam. <laughs> like we're just like squirrels in a park. You know, it's like like every direction, we're just like looking around. Great. Right. And so that means we're not attentive. We're not focusing on a task or a person or a conversation or something. But then there's this whole group of people like, you know, like like Manusha Samarodi, who we heard from earlier, who say, well, you, you need to let your mind wander, right? Because that's where creativity comes from. And, and I don't
2: quite know how, how to reconcile those two different ideas. Yeah, both are true. Both are tied to spontaneous thought. But when I use the term mind-wandering, I'm really referring to that happening when we don't want it to. We want to be focused on something and another thought pops in. The other category would be something we more colloquially would call daydreaming. That's when you let this happen without cost. Right, yeah. That capacity to let the mind engage in spontaneous thought is so generative. Positive mood increases, creativity increases, and the key is that we have the space to do that. So if every moment the attention system is being occupied by some other demand, there are fewer opportunities to let that spontaneous thought arise. And I think that's why we need to set ourselves up to have daily practices that help give us that space back. Yeah. And you see this already. I mean, to have people actually sign up to go into a room and sit quietly with their eyes closed on purpose.
0: Like one of those meditation
2: retreats. Yeah. I mean, that wouldn't have happened Before we were constantly bombarded with information. Mm. But people do this all the time. Yeah. You know, I did it. You know, I I decided to take a week trip to India, not have my phone and sit with my eyes closed and not talk to anybody.
0: I mean, did you go there just as a researcher to think, you know, I'm a neuroscientist. and I study this stuff. I should go check it out. Or did you would you you like I am losing my mind. I need to, like, get a, a control over it.
2: Well, the whole reason mindfulness training entered my laboratory is because of my direct personal interest in it. And the interest came grudgingly. I mean, I'm I'm an Indian woman. I grew up in a family where my parents meditated probably since I was a child. Wow. And growing up... I pretty much disregarded. It's like, it's that thing they do.
0: You're like, yeah, that's that weird thing my parents do.
2: Exactly. I'm yeah. a Western scientist. Like, unless there's evidence, I don't care about it or I don't <laughs> right. trust it. And, right. and I was probably in my late 30s and realized that being in a highly demanding academic profession, having young children, a husband who was in grad school, it was really hard to manage my own stress. Mm. And that's what made me interested in engaging in some tools that I could implement daily to help my attention. Here I was studying it in a lab, but I felt like I had no access to it. So what was it like? (laughs) It was terrifying at first. It was kind of like a boot camp for attention. (laughs) And it was kind of funny because after I was done with the retreat, you know, I had to go back to the airport, return to regular life. And I'm like, I wonder if all this time did anything. And one of the first things that happened to me, I was in the aisle seat and a woman came up to me. And she was like, I'm in the middle seat. So I got up to let her in. As she was sitting down, she poured the entire contents of a jumbo size beverage on me. <laughs> and my response was just surprised me. I was just like, that's okay. You didn't mean to do that. It's going to be all right. Wow. And that was the test. I was like, I didn't get angry. didn't freak, freak, out. freak out. Yeah. It was such a sense of balance I had, even as I was experiencing something potentially unpleasant. How long did that last? <laughs> you know, it's funny because my children comment on that. They're like, oh, I th- we think the retreat effect is gone now. You know, <laughs> go back. Yeah, go back. Um, I, I guess subjectively, it really depends on how my commitment to continuing to practice remains intact as I return to normal life.
0: So, I mean, it's interesting because this has been like the, the idea of mindfulness and and meditation. This has just exploded, especially in your field in neuroscience over the past mm-hmm. 10 years. Like 20 yeah. years ago, when you were probably when you were doing your Ph.D., this was still kind of like fringe stuff, right?
2: Well, when I started this work, all of my mentors said, this is ill-advised. Don't this do This is it. career suicide. You're never going to get tenure. Never going to get tenure, and nobody will ever care. <laughs> so stop. And frankly, my curiosity got the better yeah. of me, and I said, I can't not do it because I'm f- finding that it is an incredibly powerful tool that not only have I benefited from personally, but we've seen over millennia that people have gone to this type of mental training to help themselves feel better. So, uh, Amishi, if if we're
0: now, you know, really beginning to understand this link, the scientific link between uh, meditation, mindfulness, and attention and focus, w- what is actually happening in our brain when we practice mindfulness?
2: Right. That's what we're exploring right now. So just to begin by demystifying the whole thing. I yeah. mean, the work in my laboratory is, is taking – a cognitive neuroscience, brain training approach to asking and answering that question. We look at brain networks that we know are responsible for things like focus, salience detection, mind wandering, and the evidence is now amassing that it's those same brain networks that are getting stronger. So we see that as the mental push-up. Focus, notice, re-engage. And this is not some kind of spa vacation. We're not trying to mollify people. We're trying to wake them up to what's actually happening in the moment and in their lives.
0: Neuroscientist Amishi Job. She's an associate professor at the University of Miami. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. Is it is it strange to think of attention
6: as a commodity? You know, it's interesting to think of it as a commodity given how important it is. I mean, intention is just consciousness. It's experience. And to think of it as a a commodity is itself so dehumanizing. It's like taking the root, you know, whatever it is that's unexplainable about this experience and saying, yeah, let's sell that. (laughs) Let's sell the core thing to our human experience. This is Tristan Harris. He runs an organization called the
0: Center for Humane Technology that's trying to free us from our addiction to tech. But before that, Tristan actually used to work in
6: the tech industry at Google, creating the very things that tried to compete for our attention. People have been competing for attention for a long time, and, um, but you know I think we have very new, a new environment for that competition that's unprecedented. We're not built for this, and I think we have to start by looking in the mirror at how human instincts really work right we have this actually this image on our website of you know the ape turning into the neanderthal turning into the homo sapiens the man and then the next thing is this human who's sort of turning around like looking in the mirror and seeing what we are where all those instincts come from and how they're configured because we're not going to get out of the mind body meat suit that's configured and calibrated the way that it was for you know, thousands of years ago on the Savannah. No. So we're either going to build environments that are humane, that work with that architecture, or we're going to build environments that, that do not respect that architecture. And I think that it's really possible to do that, but it really just requires really a science of ourselves, like looking in the mirror and saying, how do we make stuff work with us? Here's more from
0: Tristan Harris on the TED stage.
7: What do you think makes more money in the United States than movies, game parks, and baseball combined. Slot machines. How can slot machines make all this money when we play with such small amounts of money? We play with coins. How is this possible? Well, the thing is, my phone is a slot machine. Every time I check my phone, I'm playing the slot machine to see what am I going to get. Every time I check my email, I'm playing the slot machine to say what am I going to get. Every time I scroll a news feed, I'm playing the slot machine to see what am I going to get next, right? And the thing is that, again, knowing exactly how this works, and I'm a designer, I know exactly how the psychology of this works. I know exactly what's going on. But it doesn't leave me with any choice. I still just get sucked into it. So what are we going to do? Because it leaves us with this all-or-nothing relationship with technology, right? You're either on, and you're connected and distracted all the time, or you're off, but then you're wondering, am I missing something important? In other words, you're either distracted, or you have fear of missing out. Right?
0: In just a moment, how we can break free from our addiction to technology and take back the right to choose. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
7: Support for this podcast and the following message come from TD Ameritrade. People who set defined financial goals are more likely to achieve them, and TD Ameritrade can help you craft a plan that's aligned with your specific objectives. So tell TD Ameritrade about your goals, and then you can start building towards something beautiful together. To schedule a complimentary goal planning session, visit tdameritrade.com slash podcast.
5: I'm Linda Holmes. There's more stuff to watch these days than you can ever get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we give you the lowdown on what's worth your time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today... Ideas about the consequences of living in an age of constant information and infinite distractions. And just before the break, we were hearing from Tristan Harris. After working at Google, Tristan went on to found an organization that's trying to rethink and improve our relationship with technology. Because right now, he says,
6: we don't have much of a choice. I think we have meta choices. I mean, I think as what I mean by that is if you knew that there was some other environment that's really distracting, like a casino, and it's all the way in Vegas, and you have to get in a car and drive 60 miles to get there or something like that, you could say, okay, distraction's a choice. I just won't go to Vegas. It's another thing when I you wake up in the morning and you turn off your alarm, and right next to your alarm clock in your phone when you undo the app switcher are like a hundred different invisible crazy things that all want your attention, all casinos. And so one of the problems is we don't have the ability to separate the casinos and the crazy distractions from the things that are not the distractions. Like when you do that alarm clock, you what's different about that, right? I mean, you, mm. you chose for that thing to interrupt your attention. Yeah. You, you tied your hands behind your back and said, I want you to interrupt my entire attentional cycle at 6.30 in the morning tomorrow. But then all these other things you think you chose because you downloaded that app and you think you hit allow notifications. But Did you really allow for all of those supercomputers and engineers on the other side of the screen to try and, you know, figure out what's going to keep you coming back? You know, that's not what we signed up for. It's not quite the same thing.
7: And that's what we're doing all the time. We're bulldozing each other's attention left and right. And there's serious cost to this because every time we interrupt each other, it takes us about 23 minutes on average to refocus our attention. We actually cycle through two different projects before we come back to the original thing we were doing. This is Gloria Mark's research combined with Microsoft research uh, that that showed this. Uh, And her research also shows that it actually trains bad habits. The more interruptions we get externally, it's conditioning and training us to interrupt ourselves. We actually self-interrupt about every three and a half minutes.
6: And you just imagine that, you know, that study, I think, was done, you know, in a very specific context. It was done in a workplace setting. I think it was done at NASA. And, you know, that was done, I think, in 2008, 10 years ago. And so imagine how much more often mm. we are buzzed, dinged, new emailed, you know, pouncing at us from a thousand different directions that are completely unrelated. I think something that's really under valued is the cost of unrelated different things coming at you all the time. So your mind has to switch and switch and switch.
0: So so how do we solve this? How do we even begin to, to fix this?
6: Well, we, we've been advocating for five years for a different kind of design or humane design that pays attention to the way that the human mind and the human instincts really work, and you you design to accommodate them.
0: Yeah. So 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 the idea is through I mean design. The solution is is in design.
6: It, design is one part of it, um, but it's an important part. I mean, a simple example is a lot of people have been doing this recently. You turn your phone to, to grayscale. Like, mm. why would you do yeah, that? Like, yeah. Like, why does that do anything? Yes, like, I've that's done a crazy that. Idea. I've done it. <laughs> well, in a way, it's an experiment because you get to see the difference between what's the difference when I look at my phone and all those colors light up my brain? I didn't choose for those colors to light up my brain. I just yeah. did that. Yeah. When it's gray, it has a different effect on me. And I didn't yeah. choose that either. It just I feel a little bit calmer. It feels a little bit less appealing. Imagine if all home screens were gray. It would reduce some of that addictiveness, just probably about 15%. But that's one tiny little example. I mean, another example is interruptions. How often should you get interrupted? Should we, you know, if you had to choose, if you had a lever for for two billion people, this is kind of what I was thinking about as Google. It's like you have this two billion person ant colony called humanity. And then you've got this phone in their pocket that's going to steer their attention. Now, if you're the operator, you're the one in the control room and you get to choose, do two billion people get interrupted every, you know, on a random schedule every one to 15 minutes with little <laughs> buzzes? Or would you prefer to have a world where they get interrupted once a day at 5 p.m. except if there's something extraordinarily important? Like you probably pick the latter if you're defining a default setting for two billion people.
0: What are the consequences if we do nothing? If nothing
6: changes and it just continues to get worse? I think the consequences are incredibly serious because there's a temptation to believe. I remember I had this moment. I was at a conference and I met some people who work for a security. What are they called three-letter acronym security agencies? Mm-hmm. And I gave a talk about the manipulative design stuff, you know, the way the companies use these techniques and we're hooked. And someone came up to me and said, yeah, totally. I'm so hooked by this stuff. And I said, oh, no. Like, I always thought there was this other special group of people who work on climate change or some special class of people who work on, you know, national security or some special class of people who work on inequality. And they're immune to all this stuff. And they're making really good decisions to get us out of all these messes that we're in as a global system. And then what strikes me and what terrifies me is this is the fabric through which all human thinking and choices happen, is our mind. And if that capacity for thinking and choosing is corrupted, that's everything. That disables our ability to do everything. Climate change, solving inequality, agreeing on what the truth is, our political process, elections. Everything comes down to the fabric of our mind. What are we thinking and believing? And when you turn your phone over in the morning and you see a bunch of stuff, thoughts start streaming into our heads that we didn't choose. And that is the environment that we have immersed 2 billion human animals. And that's why I look at this and say, we need to change course right now. You have to see the structure of this, that this is too much of a threat. And we can't survive it if we don't. Don Harris, he's
0: the co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology. You can see all of his talks at TED.com. Do you do you use uh, Facebook? No, no. Do you use Twitter? No, no, no. Snapchat?
3: Nope, 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 nope.
0: This is Jaron Lanier. And although you might not guess it from his social media presence, Jaron's a technologist, actually a pioneer, who's thought a lot about how and why the internet evolved into a place where
3: advertisers
0: compete for everyone's attention. Jaron's worked in tech pretty much his whole life.
3: I showed up in Silicon Valley at the start of the 80s and became a freelance video game designer in the very early days. For a while, he worked at Atari, I had a hit game in '83, I think, that nobody remembers anymore in the 8-bit era, and it was called Moon Dust. And Jaron actually founded the first virtual reality company. It was the most thrilling way to spend one's twenties that you could imagine. It just felt like we were at this moment of the creation of a new universe. It was an extraordinary feeling that doesn't exist today, although we still kind of try to evoke it in our rhetoric. It was an amazing time. But even with all of that optimism, there were some concerns about the
0: dark side of what might evolve from all that new technology. Here's Jaron Lanier on the TED stage.
3: The idealism of digital uh, culture back then was all about starting with that recognition of the possible darkness and trying to imagine a way to transcend it with beauty and creativity. It was a beautiful vision, and it's one I still believe in. I suppose I could mention one of the very earliest computer scientists, whose name was Norbert Wiener, and he wrote a book back in the 50s from before I was even born. And in the book, he described the potential to create a computer system that would be gathering data from people and providing feedback to those people in real time. And he has this amazing line where he says, one could imagine a global computer system where everybody has devices on them all the time, and the devices are giving them feedback based on what they did, and the whole population is subject to a degree of behavior modification. And uh, such a society would be insane, could not survive, could not face its problems. And then he says, but this is only a thought experiment and such a future is technologically infeasible. And yet, of course, it's what we, we have created. What my friends and I desperately wanted was exactly the opposite of that. We wanted a world of great creativity where individuals would find themselves and surprise everybody with brilliance. It was clear, though, that computers could go either way. And the thing is, it seems like we lost that war. You know, I, It's kind of the, the tragedy of my generation. So here we are, and now what we're trying to do is figure out how to unravel our mistakes. So, so what happened, in, in your view? Like, how did we
0: get to a world where advertising algorithms are constantly battling for our attention and, and tech companies are you know, essentially manipulating our behavior?
3: All right, so the core problem of companies like Facebook is perverse incentives. It's that the way they make money is from manipulating people. It's from exacting behavioral change. This advertising model arose because everybody was backed into a corner. And the way I remember it, I was around Google when it was really just starting. I don't think people wanted it. I think it was just the only available solution. Because on the one hand, we loved our entrepreneurs. We worshiped uh, Steve Jobs, for instance. But on the other hand, we wanted everything to be free. This idea of the advertising model was the only solution, and computers got faster, the algorithms got better, the customers and the users got more sophisticated, and the whole thing evolved into this massive behavior modification scheme. Uh, And I don't think we can survive on this design.
0: So do you think that attention, and and I asked asked this question to Zainab and Tristan, I mean, do you think that attention has become commodified, like that it's this huge resource now that that big companies are just trying to capture?
3: Well, attention is um, in a way a laundered term. I don't think anybody cares what you're paying attention to because that in itself doesn't do anything for anyone else. What they really care about is the behavior that results. And the behavior might be negative like it might be failing to vote in an election or it might be positive like it might be purchasing something so you know every penny that a company like facebook or google earns is because somebody believes that they're successfully manipulating someone else we've created a society where if two people wish to have contact or collaborate or be aware of each other the only way that can be financed is because there's a third party who believes they can successfully manipulate those first two people And so attention is only a precedent to that. What started out as advertising really can't be called advertising anymore. It turned into behavior modification. And so this is the dilemma we've gotten ourselves into. The alternative is to turn back the clock and remake that decision. Remaking it would mean two things. It would mean, first, that many people, those who could afford to, would actually pay for these things. You'd pay for search, you'd pay for social networking. How would you pay? Maybe with a subscription fee, maybe with micropayments as you use them. There's a lot of options. If some of you were recoiling and you're thinking, oh my God, I would never pay for these things, I want to remind you of something that just happened. Around the same time that companies like Google and Facebook were formulating their free uh, idea, a lot of cyber culture also believed that in the future, televisions and movies would be created in the same way, kind of like the Wikipedia. But then companies like Netflix, Amazon, HBO said, actually, you know, subscribe, we'll give you great TV. And it worked. We now are in this period called peak TV, Right? So sometimes when you pay for stuff, things get get better. (laughs) Uh, We can imagine a hypothetical world of peak social media. What would that be like? It would mean when you get on, you can get really useful, authoritative medical advice instead of cranks. It could mean when you want to get factual information, there's not a bunch of weird, paranoid conspiracy theories. We can imagine this wonderful other possibility. I dream of it. I believe it's possible. I'm certain it's possible. And I'm certain that the companies, the Googles and the Facebooks would actually do better in this world. I don't believe we need to punish Silicon Valley. We just need to remake the decision. If we do nothing and the
0: way we consume the internet, and the way we interact with it just
3: continues, what happens? What happens to us, to To our behavior? If we do nothing and we continue as we are, democracies will continue to devolve and we'll end up in a world of autocrats who are somehow connected to the biggest computers and we'll enter into the kind of dystopia that's been foreseen in science fiction. Uh, eventually... Something will come along that the society can't deal with and will be extinguished. So if the species is to survive and is to be creative, we cannot fall into that trap. We we simply cannot.
0: You know, Jaron, humans have been around as a species for like 300,000 years, right? And we haven't really changed all that much. But, But do you think that we humans are equipped to take in all of these inputs, like to give all of our attention to things like like social media like it is part of the problem that we just our brains aren't built to juggle all this incoming information
3: you know uh I think we're designed for a tremendous amount of input and a tremendous amount of memory. Um, I think the problem with the digital era is we get a lot of signals that are actually not real signals, like, you know, buy these shoes, go to this party. Oh, you're not as hot as the other person. I don't know, just this endless stream of stuff. And so I don't think it's so much that we're being overwhelmed by genuine detail, but by pseudo-detail. And it's like we're in this behaviorist experiment where we're in this maze where instead of the world of scents and hues and shades and uh, the subtleties of nature that are ever changing and infinitely deep. Instead, we're in this world of little buttons and lights and uh, treat dispensers. And it's actually a curtailed, simplified world that seems complex just because having a lot of it kind of takes up our time, takes up our attention. But I actually think we are built for a great deal of stimulus and detail, and we're not getting it. I think that the, the more accurate description of modern times is that we're starved for reality.
0: Sharon Lanier. He's a computer scientist who teaches and writes a lot about technology. You can see his entire talk at TED.com.
7: Sometimes I don't pay attention and I hit cars Sometimes I don't pay attention and I start wars Sometimes I don't
0: Hey, thanks for listening to our show on attention this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanfor, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin, Lawrence Wu, and Diva Motasham. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Jenna Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about our show, please go to Apple Podcasts and write a review, and you can tweet at us. It's at TED Radio Hour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.